you know, looking back, it's like, you don't feel sorry for yourself when you're in that, in survival mode. You know, you don't have time for it. You just kind of, you just kind of go and, and do, do whatever you can do. All right, we are here today with Jenny Britton Bauer, who is the founder and chief creative officer of Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams, a multi-channel retailer with dozens of company-owned scoop shops across the country, a robust e-commerce presence and distribution in top groceries across the United States. Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams is a certified B Corporation meeting rigorous standards of social and environmental performance, accountability, and transparency. Jenny published her first book in 2011, New York Times bestseller, Jenny's Splendid Ice Cream at Home, which earned a 2012 James Beard Award. And in 2014, she published Jenny's Splendid Ice Cream Desserts. She briefly attended Ohio State studying art and art history. And in August of 2016, Jenny was presented with an honorary doctorate of business administration degree from OSU. She is a member of the 2017 class of Henry Crown Fellows within the Aspen Global Leadership Network at the Aspen Institute and is a local, uh, I don't know what to call you, you're, you're famous, you're a celebrity, you're well-respected, you're all kinds of things in this community. I think you know what your bio probably doesn't say is just how active you are in so many different areas of the community and helping so many entrepreneurs and others. And so um, it's great to have you here. Thanks for taking some time. Hi. <laughs> I hate those bios so much. I know. It's so fun. It's so hard to, to hear, but thank you. That's that's awesome. And yes, I love this community so very much. Well, you're you're humble and and I know that isn't why you do any of this, you know. So sometimes that might be kind of hard to hear all that, you know, about yourself, but it does say you've done a lot, you know. And anyway, I think it's helpful for our guests to kind of to hear what's led to that. And and what I've been focused on really with the Gravity Podcast is letting people hear the full journey, um, hearing all the trials and tribulations. And we're in one of those times now, but you know, you're you're not a stranger to overcoming challenges in, in your career and in your life. Um, so maybe we can kind of go back to the as a matter of fact, that's like what I'm good well, at. <laughs> people think I'm good at ice cream. No, 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 no. I'm like good at uh, getting getting the ring to Mordor is like what I like mm-hmm. to say. Yeah, well, it's a it's an important part of being an entrepreneur and and in life. I mean, you know, look these these challenges are going to come. I don't think any of us are immune to that. And how you uh, are able to navigate through it is really an important part. And so maybe we could kind of just you know start by jumping in there. Tell me a little bit. Tell our listeners a little bit about kind of your upbringing, where you're from, what your kind of uh, early childhood life was like, because I think that maybe, you know, kind of starts the, your journey here in, in learning how to be who you are. Well, I was born in New Jersey, Eatontown, on an army base. Uh, my, my father had been drafted into the Vietnam War. He never actually went to war because it was late. Uh, he was drafted in 1973. Uh, I was born in 73 in an army base over there. And then we went to Germany where my sister was born. So we lived there for a while because he was in the army and then moved back to where my family uh, is from. And that's Peoria, Illinois. And so I spent my childhood in Peoria, most of it, moved to Columbus when I was 12. 
I was raised by some non-traditional thinkers, and I'm grateful for that. My grandparents on my dad's side, uh, my grandmother's an art teacher and an English teacher and just kind of a, just a very creative human being, uh, rejected fully. I mean, her great-grandfather was a suffragist. And so she was just a cool, very, very powerful human. She was awesome, actually. A story about my grandmother, Enid. Uh, my grandfather like forbid her to go to uh, Europe by herself in the 70s, actually, to come over and visit us. And uh, because he was worried about her and, you know, women at the time or whatever. So she sold his car, bought a ticket and went. So she's awesome. But, um, and then, uh, so I credit her a lot with how I, with that sort of, just with my, I guess, sense of curiosity, deep sense of curiosity, because she was nothing if not that. She passed away last year and to the end, she was absolutely the most curious person I've ever met. She and my grandfather um, were known in the community to have read every book in the library. And so they would order books out. Like they would have to order books from other cities for them. And they owned 10 acres of woods of forest land that we went to every single weekend. And that was pretty interesting. So we always had cool projects going on out there. Uh, lots of Thoreau. We, we read a lot of Thoreau. My grandfather really could have been Thoreau's stand-in in the 20th, you know, later 20th or in the 20th century. He had a cabin out there that he would go out just to meditate and think and, you know, commune with nature or whatever. Um, so yeah, so the good early, early uh, childhood was pretty fabulous. Mm-hmm. And you remember, you know, those kind of uh, experiences of really observing that, seeing that, I mean, meditating. I mean, these were not kind of mainstream things like they are today. Um, that was something that as a, as a child, you actually really like remember kind of it m- making an impact <laughs> on you beyond just like the DNA I of it. Okay, it. yeah, tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> I hated it. So I would have to, so we were forced to spend two hours in the woods by ourselves when we went out there. And so... Um, you are how uh, old? Which, you know, we all hate it. Um, seven, okay. mm-hmm. eight, nine. And so, we, you know, we were always having fun down at the creek or riding this three-wheeler around and like, you know, running around or whatever. We had honeybees out there in multiple gardens. And so it was just really, really fun. No matter what season we were out there. And then we'd have to, you know, we'd get the call and we'd have to go sit by ourselves. So how you packed your, my grandmother called it knapsack, how you packed your little, um, your, your, uh, your backpack you know, for the day was everything. So for me, it was a tape recorder, a sketchbook, you know, obviously some snacks, granola bar or whatever. And, um, and I always sat in the same place. I had this big oak tree. It was an original growth oak tree. I mean, it had to have been, I mean, I was little at the time, but it had to have been 15 feet in diameter. I don't know. It was huge. It was enormous. It was kind of in the middle of the upper part of the woods. And that was where I always went. And so I believe very deeply, I think until I was like at least 13, that there were gnomes that lived in that tree. And so that I, um, then they were coming out curious about me and they knew I was there, but like, I just couldn't get them to come out and say hi. So I believe very much that it was my energy that was the most important thing to building trust with them. (laughs) This is all so like, you know, crazy, but like, I I really believe if I sat there and I, and I had the purest energy and intent in the world. And I was just, if they could just feel that I was a nice person that they would learn to trust me. And I'd be like the only human on earth that actually got to like hang out with gnomes. And they never came. Yeah, so that was what I would do for my two they hours. They never came. They never did. I was convinced though that they, I just couldn't see them, that they were like hiding somewhere, like looking at me and then studying me. Um, but I had my tape recorder on just in case. I mean, I would go there, I'd pull the tape recorder out, I'd turn it on, I'd get my sketchbook ready. I mean, and I would talk to them. And, and, mm-hmm. and in hindsight, do you kind of see yourself as 
like having always been creative. Like that was a a way that you were being creative then in your, you know, what we would have as child as children called imagination or daydreaming. You know, to me that's it sounds like creativity. Well, I was never forced into that militaristic rote learning um, pattern that we expect from our children now and that we expected even when I was a kid, you know, go to school, pay attention, follow the rules, do your homework. I mean, I'm sort of, um, it's kind of a joke, but I really actually didn't do homework from K through 12. Um, I never did homework. I only did tests. My mom actually didn't like us doing homework at home. She thought home time was for home, which I agreed. So I would go home and start a business. And I did that constantly. And instead of doing homework, but then of course I'd go to school as the shyest person, quietest person, most anxiety ridden Mm -hmm. kid. And like, I didn't have my homework done. So I have to say yet again, I don't Mm -hmm. have it. Um, Or try to get it done in the hallway or whatever, you know, whatever uh, hustling I could do. But anyway, that was all fine. I just didn't do it. So I think the idea was, I was never forced into that. I was allowed to be, I was allowed to think the world was a magical place my entire childhood. And I believe that now, Mm -hmm. still. And, and the magic exists, you know, in energy and in, in like um, all of these little sort of nuances. And, and where did that belief system come from? Was that what is it? What you're saying? Your your grandparents, your family, kind of allowed that to be the. There was an opening to, to have that belief. Yeah, I mean, we were. Uh, my mom also. My mom. Um, there was my grandmother on my dad's side, and then my mother, who come who came from much more traditional sort of um, um, working class parents. Um, just, you know, just my grandfather worked at the newspaper setting type his entire life. He worked two or three jobs. My grandmother stayed at home and she was, you know, the cookie baking roast on Sunday grandmother. Um, but my mom comes from that family, um, but she's a very creative thinker too. And so I think that's why she was drawn to my dad's family. But anyway, so my mother would surround us with books that supported this. And, um, and again, she was the one that wouldn't allow homework, but definitely like wanted us to be working on different things. And so we did whatever businesses or um, not we would we would hold you know fa- we would do fundraisers in our neighborhood for uh, local um, charities mm-hmm. or whatever it would be and and, and we're working th- on this side. this you know idea that you were um, not focused in school or anxiety ridden you know shy I think you said tell tell me do you have a sense as to why that was you know where was your anxiety coming from at that time it was from school I didn't like being mm-hmm. there. So, you know, I'm going, I'm, I'm a sort of free roaming kid who then every day has to go into this place of rigid rules, expectations, you know, stand in line, walk together in line, you know, that kind of stuff. And that was just not, it was like a, it was this too big of a clash with the rest of my mm-hmm. life, I think. Um, but I also think that I was I, w- I do think that some of this is genetic. I think I was born a quiet person mm-hmm. and um, inward looking person, not so more of an introvert. I mean, I love people and I love being around people and there's a, something about that that's just me, but it's also like, I just have, I think I'm just always been like a quiet person and, and really at ease when I'm alone mm-hmm. and dreaming or thinking or mm-hmm. whatever. And so being in that situation with people I didn't choose to be around, you know, like, where, you know, you know, it was just very... I also moved every mm-hmm. year, which I, we didn't talk about. So I went to a different school every mm. single year. So I didn't have like a community that like knew who I was or that was helping me because they understood me the way that my kids have now because we've been in the same school district their entire life. You know, I just never had that. I never had a friend longer mm-hmm. than a year. So, I mean, I had my sister at home. So, you know, there's a lot of things I think that played into that, but including genetics, mm-hmm. just 
you know, being being born that yeah, way. Yeah, well, I'm I'm curious because it's a subject that you know in my own life has has been kind of um, something that I've had to explore and uncover, and I think is is not uncommon that you know people don't excel in in school for a lot of reasons. And you know, sometimes that can be the environment, the, the actual school environment. Sometimes it can be, you know, what's happening at home. You know, it can be a lot of things. And I think, you know, what what tends to happen, what happened to me, is you kind of you you make some decisions or some stories based on that experience. Um, you know, not paying attention for me in school was a kind of a tool that I had used to learn to disassociate from what was going on at home, and I became kind of a daydreamer. Um, which turned out to be a, a superpower, you know, for a while. But it was really a form of kind of escaping, um, and you know, not that that's true for you or for everybody, but you know. Well, and it put you in different times in your mm-hmm. life. I mean, um, and and you, when you've developed these skills, and I'm, I'm a daydreamer to the point where it like can sometimes feel mm-hmm. real. Like I'm, um, you know, I don't drive a car, I drive a spaceship mm-hmm. kind of thing, but um, like. Depending on the time of my life, that daydreaming, that escape became an escape. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And I still use that now when I need it for literally to escape, of course, to imagine the future and to bring something mm-hmm. to life and innovation and all of that stuff and growth and all of that. But, but yeah, it just, I think, you know, when you, depending on your life or, you know, what era you're at in your life and what, what's happening. Yeah. And so how did that experience of kind of, you know, not really getting settled in a school or feeling like school was necessarily for you. Um, how did that then kind of shape you and being kind of break the mold kind of person that you are? I mean, did it, you know, what influence did that really have on how you've moved forward with life? I mean, I knew, I think I knew early on that having a traditional career would be a lot like being in school. And so mm-hmm. um, I felt like I needed to own my future and own my own life. And so when I heard about like, you can just, you know, start a business and support yourself and make your own career. Like that was for me, like early, early on Mm -hmm. in my life. I just knew that that would be how I would do it. And I also saw art kind of that way. My grandmother, an artist, she would totally disagree with me because she hated selling things or she wouldn't do things on commission. Like, so whereas in business, you're trying to please people, artists don't do that. She's like, she's so against it. But um, we would argue about that a little bit. But I also saw like, okay, I could be an artist that would work too, because then it's like you're in control. I just needed to be in control. I, I didn't, I don't like to be managed. Like I am, uh, I like to say, and I've said this since I was young, I'm a nice person. I think I'm a nice person. Everybody tells me that, but I am not manageable anyway. Mm-hmm. Like you can't, like, if you want me to do something, it's like, I probably won't do it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's something mm-hmm. in me and it's been around for a long time. And, and, and did you used to struggle with that? Have you, you know, I'm assuming you've just embraced it. You know it about yourself and, and are pretty um, clear about that now. But was that a struggle for you earlier on? Well, you know, moving around a lot, as soon as people kind of got to know you and as, you know, it, you would move. And so, which is sort of awesome because nobody tried to change me. They didn't know me well enough to sort of beat the bad mm-hmm. habits or what they would have considered bad habits out of me in a way. So I just kind of um, kept going. And I think I was kind of like quietly under the radar everywhere I went um, until, you know, late high school maybe. And even then, and then, you know, and, and even now, you know, I mean, I, I will quietly work and then, you know, show up through my work and through um, all of that instead of, I don't know. You know what I mean? I do. 
Okay, so you land uh, in Columbus, right? In Arlington? Uh, well, and... at the time it was um, Dublin. So we, we moved okay, to Dublin, Dublin. My seventh, uh, summer before my seventh grade year. And is that where you graduated from high school? No, um, I moved then to London, Ohio uh, okay. for a time. And then I moved to Centerville, Ohio, which is by Dayton. And then back to Arlington, which is where I graduated. So yeah, man, I'm moving a lot. Wow, you were, you were moving We're nomadic. A lot. Yeah. yeah, and that was, you know, we had already moved a whole bunch, you know, before I'd gotten to seventh grade in Dublin too. So, And not anywhere like interesting. We moved in Peoria, we would move to the country, back to the mm-hmm. city, out of, you know, mm-hmm. three neighborhoods over, but it was always a different school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would imagine that was tough. I mean, I, maybe it was just what you were used to and maybe it turns out to be a good thing, but it seems like a lot of moving around. I mean, I have kids that are all in high school and, you know, their friends have been their friends for, you know, since they were little, um, you know, it's, right. it's, it had to be tough. It, it was and it wasn't. There were some, I got used to it and I liked it because, you know, I, I thought every time we got a new apartment, we almost always lived in apartments or every time we had a new, it was a new beginning. And so, you know, everything would sort of fall apart in my house and my family. And then we would move and it would be like this moment of like, everything's going to be better now. And that, that hopefulness that we were always sort of chasing, I think, was awesome in a weird way. It was like, okay, now I get to reinvent myself. I can go to school and present as whoever I want. Maybe this year I'm going to try to be a little more open. You know, and I have tons of stories about how you know, I would try to raise my hand or I would try to do something different than what I had done before or dress a little differently or whatever. You know, so, I, I would, so I think there's something about that reinvention that I loved and that I, it probably served me really well in my life. Talk talk a little bit about what it means that that it was falling apart. What what was happening in your life that was falling apart, and and, and how did that influence you? Well, a couple of things. I mean, they my family, my parents had children really early. He, he had been drafted, so they were sort of they you know they had their jobs, but they were a little bit there was always money problems. But I think also even bigger than that was that they both both of my parents are very smart. My dad was like a physics guy. My mother is um just incre- incredibly creative and very intellectual and like was like the valedictorian of her class. And they they had all these big dreams and hopes of who they were going to become. Um they were gonna, you know, they had plans to go to Colorado and go to, you know, university, be the first one to graduate in their um families from from college and my mother was going to be a journalist and my dad a physicist or whatever and like all this stuff. Well, then he got drafted and, you know, whatever thing that was going on between my mother and his parents, there was something and she ended up pregnant, right? So I think it was like, they didn't want him to get married. And then it was like, okay, but now they're pregnant. I don't know. That's just, you know, so she gets, they get pregnant and um, now it's over, right? So now we've got a baby. We got to go and get through our <laughs> basic training, get into the army, do all this stuff. They have another baby. And now all of their dreams and hopes and who they thought they were going to be are literally completely gone. And she's 20 years old and really smart. So she's pissed for the rest of her life, basically. (laughs) You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And I understand that, you know, as a woman, you know, having children and all that and and whatever, and the pressures even, um, you know, now, but let alone in the Mm seventies. And so, you know, my, my dad, when we were growing up, always was the guy who fixed the cash registers. So he had a beeper and we would be like at the pizza place and the beeper would go off and he would have to like rush out and fix some cash register in some grocery store. He worked for NCR. 
which is pretty funny. So, you know, so it was that. When I was in second grade, I, I, I was in the hospital a whole bunch of times. I had all these emergencies actually probably wouldn't be around today if I'd lived, you know, a few decades earlier. Um, and then that put us into like bankruptcy basically. And so mm. we were just, you know, and then there was the divorce and, you know, I mean, it was just, mm. you know, it just, it just kind of blows up uh, around age 12 for me. Mm. And, and you go on to live with your mother or father at that point? Um, I live with both. I want a little bit with both. Ended up with my mother and then my dad's out of my life for um, 16 years from the time I was mm-hmm. 16 until my 30s. Mm. And Let's his come- family, the grandmother that I loved very deeply and all of that, they all sort of walked. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, and, and let me let me come back to that. I'm I'm curious about that. Um, and I think you know this is it's interesting, and, and I think it's relevant because you know um, you know just hearing my own story in, in years, you know, having my parents get divorced at ten years old, and you know having my father absent for a while. I, we're not alone, and I think yeah. it's helpful for people to to hear you know kind of this part of the journey. Um, you're, you're I want to kind of just like uh, click on this this thing about your mom being pissed because I think you're right. This is like a very real thing. And, you know, I I actually was on someone else's podcast having this conversation earlier in a little bit of a different way. The question was around balance and how do you balance being a father and and working hard and growing a business. And I think there's so much around kind of what we're supposed to be and supposed to do that like saying you're pissed about how your life just changed when you're supposed to be happy is like, you know, not cool. It's not, it's not, there's no room for that. And so I'm, I'm just curious to kind of hear a little bit more about how that played out. You know, how, your mother, did she remain pissed? Did, you know, how did that go and, and, and how did that shape you? Yeah, she wouldn't, it took me years to, to put it all together and like realize what was going on. I mean, she suffers from multiple mental health um, challenges. She's been in and out of the hospital. And I, and I don't think that she would mind me saying that. I mean, I think, so one, when I started looking at how I would feel at 30 year old to have 10 year old and a nine year old child, or no, a 12 year old, no, no, 10 year old. She was, I was, she was 20 when I was born. And here I am 46 and I have a 10 year old, you know what I mean? Like what's the difference? And so, I, you know, just seeing how, and seeing how they struggled because they didn't get their degrees and seeing how everything was just so hard and they tried so hard to have like a life that felt normal and they just couldn't. Mm-hmm. And once the the family fell apart, just seeing what it was like to be a single mom. And then she had this husband who was just, uh, it's hard to describe, you know, he was bipolar and whatever, but uh, they were they were together a very short period of time, but she had my brother at the time. So I have a very young, uh, much younger than me brother who's, actually just gotten accepted to the police academy. I'm really excited for him. But anyway, he's 17 years younger than me. So when we were, when I was, you know, young and still living with her and we had the baby, she was high, very anemic on top of having mental issues and mental health challenges. Um, she had physical challenges. So I took care of the baby a lot. And, you know, just seeing how when you're a single mom baby trying to do daycare and afford it and uh, to kids, you know, who are in high school who can support themselves. We both had jobs and, and we bought our own clothes. And we bought our own stuff, and our own cars, but one parking ticket can ruin everything for years for you. Right. 
And how are you not going to get a parking ticket? Because, you know, you've got the baby, you've got to get this permit to do this other thing, to do this other thing. I don't know. You know, I mean, there's always, everything is a pain in the ass for poor people or people who have fallen through the cracks in this way. And I've seen it up close more than I care to say, but, um, but, but, but like, you know, I remember one time we got evicted. I mean, you know, I say like twice actually. And like, you're like, once it piles up, it piles on and it doesn't stop. You know what I mean? It's like, you can't get anyone to listen to you. Everybody's got a story, a sad sack story or whatever. And so your little one doesn't matter, but you're literally got a baby on your hip and like, you can't make it meet. Your car barely works. You can barely afford gas. And now you just got a parking ticket. And now you can't get a bank account. Now you can't get a phone. Now you can't get a rental car anywhere or a hotel room anywhere. I mean, it's pretty crazy. You know, I'm hearing a lot there. And, and, I, and I think you're describing kind of the challenge of, of really being down and, and having challenges uh, really build and, and the difficulty that people face getting out of that. And, and I'm wondering, you know, how much, how much of your kind of motivation comes from that, but, but also, you know, that, that look, I, I, you know, had a key to my house when I was nine and, you know, worked through high school and, you know, um, you know, did a lot of those kind of, you know, same things, but, but I think I kind of underestimated a little bit how hard that was to have to grow up so fast and be so responsible. And, and I'm just curious, like, you know, I know that was just your world and and you just did what you had to do probably, but like, you know, looking back on it in hindsight, like it's a lot for a young person to have to take on. It is. And I also, and I will also say that uh, I, I, it's why I know kids are so resilient. Kids are amazing in their resiliency, both um, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically, like we, like, like we can, uh, trust our children with, you know what I mean, to get through things. Um, and of course, we want to be there for them. We want to support them. But I know that um, that kids are are just an incredible um, force. I mean, I, I, mm-hmm. I want I want to like lift kids up because I know that that like, man, when you if you've been through some of this stuff, you have almost an advantage. Actually, you have an advantage. You built yeah. some resilience. So let's figure out how we can find some of these kids and. Uh, and support mm-hmm. them because they've yeah. got this kind of resilience. I mean, when I started my company, I know we can get into this in, in a little while, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been able to live. And I, I literally lived out of my car for three months when I started mm-hmm. my first company. I mean, I lived off of a shoestring for at least a decade. And that's like lower than minimum wage or like mm-hmm. that I was paying myself for much more hours of work. I don't think I would have been able to do that had my standard of living maybe been a little higher, you know? Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. There's it would have probably it a great advantage. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. You, you know, mm-hmm. you, you might make different decisions. You might decide, you know, I need to get a job. I need to do certain things because I just can't live like this. But I, I agree, you know, and, and and really one of the main um threads of kind of the podcast and what I've been, you know, really uh learning and, and passionate about is that I I have a worldview that it is all happening for our benefit. And and sometimes you know that's really hard to see and really hard to understand. But when you look back over all the different pieces of the puzzle, I mean, I can say in my own life that each one of those things that appeared to be really bad and really awful and really hard turns out to be really important for me to do what I'm doing. And you know that's that's what I hear when you know I, I hear you say that. And and you know, I want to come back to the piece about your father before we kind of move into your career. So 
your dad and his family who were really important to you go away at age 16. Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell me what happens. Well, we, uh, you know, it was just, the, and it was a part of that sort of super blow up of the, of the family. And it was just, you know, my sister and I are sort of caught, caught in the, in the crossfire of all of that. And, um, and so we just kind of go our, our, I guess, you know, our own ways. And, um, and it's uh, and it's a little bit crazy and it's a little hard. I mean, it's very hard, you know. I mean, because you end up, but you know, we're, we were so deep in the struggle that it's like you're just thinking about tomorrow. You know what I mean? And um, and and you just keep, you just get through it, um, however you can. You know, I mean, it was just like mm-hmm. it was really survival. It was really mm-hmm. survival. And so, you know, looking back, it's like you don't feel sorry for yourself when you're in that in survival mode. You know, you mm-hmm. don't have time for it. You just kind of. Right. You just kind of go and, and do do whatever you can do. Accept it for kind of what it is, and and you're focused on surviving. So yeah. so you you go to Ohio State. Um, <laughs> you know, briefly says the bio. I'm guessing you're quickly learning school still not for you. Tell me a little bit about that. One one great benefit that I had in my life was that my mother always wanted us to live in good school districts. So we were always the kids in the the family in the apartment in the the advanced mm. school districts. So there were Ar- there was Arlington and um, Dublin here in Columbus. And uh, and that was really great. So while I was a D student, and that's because I did well on tests and never did homework. So it would average out to be a D almost always. Um, I, I did love learning very, very much. And so that was great. But I uh, all of my counselors were like, well, you know, school's really not for you. You probably aren't going to... You're not... I don't think they said probably. You won't get into college. You are not that kind of kid. And, uh, and I thought, how insulting. <laughs> I don't know why mm-hmm. I thought that. But I also refused to take the SAT because I thought it was bullshit. And I still do. I just thought, you know, mm-hmm. I've had a job. I, like I've started little businesses. I have a brother, a baby brother that I've been taking care of. Like, don't tell me that I haven't learned stuff. And I read mm-hmm. a lot, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because I get D's in, in, in school or whatever. I just thought it was so terrible. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so anyway, I also thought I'm going to show them that I'll be fine. I'll get into Ohio State. And um, anyway, so I applied, of course, Ohio State was like, no thanks. And, um, and then I, I appealed it and they let me in, which is great. So I basically just told them what was going on, mm-hmm. what I had been up to in, uh, in high school when I was getting straight Ds. And then they mm-hmm. let me in. So that was great. So, but the first quarter I had, I sort of got my ass handed to me because I didn't know how to do homework and mm-hmm. I didn't know how to study and all of that stuff. And, um, and I couldn't just do well on tests there because it was much, much more difficult. And um, so I had to learn and I did. I actually really enjoyed school at Ohio State very, very, very much. I loved it. I, of course, didn't take anything that anybody wanted me to take in terms of classes. I took all the stuff I wanted to. So I wasn't on like a degree track, I think. Mm-hmm. But I really loved it. And I spent a lot of time on campus, even going to classes that I wasn't signed up for, uh, especially when it comes to art history. So I would take my art history class and then I would sit through the next one a lot. And just, it was fantastic. I loved it. So that period of time in my life was really important because I was doing a lot of really fun, interesting things that just drove me, that moved me, it motivated me. And I just loved the feeling I had being on campus, that there was so much knowledge there to be explored. And I think mm-hmm. that's how I get led to ice cream because I'm, I'm like meeting people in the chemistry department and um, mm-hmm. you know studying you know scent and uh, scented compounds. That's how I get introduced to scent and the importance of that. And because of the forest that I grew up in, I was very connected to my sense of smell. Still am, 
And I thought, well, that whatever I do in my life needs to be something through scent. So I thought about doing that, like incorporating it into art. Mm-hmm. And then I was also working at the pastry shop just to get myself through college. So it was really like that time because I was pursuing all these things that I really loved. And also because I really didn't have any family guiding me or anybody really, really saying, trying to keep me on like a straight, more straight and narrow path. I was really kind of all over the place. Uh, but I found ice cream by doing mm-hmm. that. And um, just by experimenting and playing around and just being so engaged with my life at the time. And so with possibility, I mean, I was just really so full of excitement for the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny, you know, I have a junior and senior and, you know, one's headed to college in the fall, hopefully. And, and the other is kind of knee deep and, and starting to explore that process. And, um, you know, it might've taken a global, pandemic to get rid of you know standardized tests but I, I couldn't agree more with you it's so you know I think specific uh, a way of evaluating a, a young adult and their knowledge and it just mm-hmm. isn't representative of their total knowledge base and their capabilities and it ends up kind of you know putting people into categories that you know I think are a bit unfair and I love that you appeal. That's great. You know, I didn't you, even know you could appeal. I I've never like, heard of that. Yeah, dear so and so, uh huh. Think you should reconsider. <laughs> yeah, well, and I'm and like your story of kind of you know wandering around taking classes as you wished and sitting in on things you weren't signed up from. It has like a Steve Jobs kind of like feel, but you know, I think there is something to the kind of creative, um, you know, really you know explorer curious you know, soul that you are that had you just doing that. I think that's not something that, you know, is easy for people to make the decision to do. Some people might 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 um, hear it and think it sounds easy to not have to be on a track, but actually it's much harder to say, you know, I'm not going to follow that track. I, I think that shows great courage. It. It's not easy. I just, yeah. yeah. I always wanted to be more of a generalist in everything, you know, like just kind of pursue the things that interest me. I mean, obviously I've gotten, um, I've been, I've gotten good at ice cream and that's a, a very specific and very deep part of my life. But part of being good at ice cream is being a generalist in a lot of other places, you know, when mm-hmm. it comes to like psychology and sociology mm-hmm. and understanding mm-hmm. people and listening to people and just looking at pop culture and um, art and how to, you know, like writing for art history, the writing I had to do for art history is exactly the kind of writing I do in our marketing department now. It's like mm-hmm. such an incredible advantage that I did that because connecting to disparate pieces of art from the same artist or from a different artist, but from the same time period is like, is making that case, finding patterns and, and being able to write and communicate that was probably the most important thing I learned in terms of practical skills to have a business. Yeah, it's a funny thing, you know, because I think people don't necessarily look at those um, learnings as like business skills, you know, but, but the truth is, is that like how you are with people you know, how culture, you know, uh, there's so many things from, you know, the psychology aspect of, of even just being, you know, kind of empathetic and, and, you know, connecting and, and, you know, curious. I mean, I think I have a lot of thinking on, on entrepreneurship. I think entrepreneurship is very different from business. I mean, business Mm -hmm. is a, is a teachable, it's like a complex, it's a structure of disciplines. And you can go to Ohio State and learn that structure of disciplines. You can learn Mm -hmm. finance, you can learn, HR, you can learn best mm-hmm. practices for marketing and all of that stuff. Yeah. But I think that founding a company, especially one like mine, but but 
many, many other companies, it's much more emotional. It's mm-hmm. much more about um, intuitive people and being intuitive and listening to um, just listening to people and, and learn and that sort of empathy that you get from understanding people or trying to. And then you make products that people want, right? And you can start to predict that. And that's what business is really all about. And I would say, if you want to be an entrepreneur, go, go just, I mean, go get a job at Starbucks or yes. Jenny's because you're going to listen, you're going to, you're going to watch. Uh, hundreds of people walking through there every single day. You're going to watch how they make decisions. You're going to start to learn what their standards are. You're going to start to learn how different everyone is out there and find opportunity there long before you can find opportunity just sitting in a classroom. You know what I mean? Not that some people are geared toward that and that's great, but like... For entrepreneurs. Yeah. I I think that's great advice. And and I want to kind of circle back to ice cream because, you know, you... You said something that I think is really important and that you were connecting dots. You know, what I heard you say is you were connecting dots uh, um, of things that you were just um, passionate about, smell, scent. It wasn't so much about the ice cream as the product. It was about all of the other pieces of the, the kind of puzzle that you were pulling together and you and you landed on ice cream, but you started with things that you were really just passionate about that seemed probably outside of some sort of end product. Um, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I would say that I was sort of following my curiosity, following my nature, where what felt good to me, like what is exciting to me. And then through that, over time, that became sort of distilled when I figured out ice cream. It was like what I wanted to do was. I like working with my hands. I like making stuff. I like telling stories. I love, like, of course, my the the sort of sense of smell, but that's also flavor. Most flavor is in your nose. So it's like you can only taste five things on your tongue. Everything else is in your nose, um, or is a scent. And so that's flavor, pastry, that whole world, or whatever was really interesting to me. And when I started making ice cream, just because I was working on a project with from from sort of pastry point of view, and I realized that ice cream because I had studied different kinds of fats and how they carry scent and their different just melting points and so on. Because I had sort of studied that and actually read a lot about ancient perfuming and things. Once I started making ice cream, I realized that butterfat was the perfect carrier of scent. Because a lot of times when you're in a when you're perfume, especially if you're an ancient perfumer, you're look you're trying to fat that's solid time mature. So that when you load it up with scent and put it on your skin, it melts and volatilizes all that scent out. And so um, I'd read all this stuff about ancient perfuming and I was like, whoa, like Cream and ice cream is a perfect carrier of scent. Butterfat melts two degrees below body temperature. Um, you can load it up with scent. It ho- hooks on a scent really easily. And, um, and it's also like a non-brittle fat. So like coconut oil is very brittle and cocoa butter is very brittle when it's frozen, but like cream and the butterfat in there is kind of flexible. It's just a little more elastic mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, so it's so fun. Uh, so the idea was just like, I saw that and I was like, this is awesome. Like I can... Mm-hmm you know, imagine the world if like, it's not just about, so like, this is me. I'm like, I realize ice cream is like so interesting to me. And then I telescope it out to the future and think like, the world needs this kind of ice cream, right? Like right now we have Ben and Jerry's, which is awesome, but it's all about chunks and Haagen-Dazs, which is fine, but they only have four flavors and, you know, whatever all the cheaper stuff is. But imagine the world if we're like making ice creams with like better ingredients and we really put um, thought into how it, unfurls on your palate and imagine like that's the new standard in American ice cream. <laughs> like, right. These are like my, you know, it's really, 
Yeah, it's really great, you know, to hear you describe that because I, I think, you know, that because this um, American ice cream, you know, to me, I think historically, like I think of like Baskin Robbins, right? Or the names that you mentioned. And it was very pretty kind of simple. And even the ones that were a little more complex were still simple. The whole process was simple. Um, it was very kind of American and generic. And what you're describing is a, like a, I mean, I'm I'm hearing the like the, the chemistry and the brilliance in the in the kind of like imagination of what's possible in like a Willy Wonka kind of way, right? Like you're really tapping into something. Um, and I'm I'm wondering, like, as that's coming to you, does it feel like it's it's real and it's and it's really something that's um, possible, or does it feel like it's hard to achieve? I mean, because it it seems so new and so complex. I mean, you're clear, clearly knowledgeable and 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 studied and and going back, you know, through the perfume. I mean, this there's a lot of knowledge and brilliance to kind of come to this. And, and and yet really pioneering. So, you know, what was that like to kind of be right there with it? Well, I um, I had friends who were chefs. Um, and so mm. I would sort of take, the, you know, some ice creams that I made to them. And like, um, that was really fun. I got a lot of good feedback from them. It started to feel like, well, and also I will say that like from the moment that I really made my first ice cream, when I had this discovery that like ice cream could be so much better than it, is or at least you know for people like for me from that second like I created this vision and it was like it was almost like an epiphany it was like the sky opened up and like all of a sudden like I just knew mm. what the rest of my life was going to be like I knew it so deeply and had like never questioned it after that right mm. I don't know why I never questioned it I think there's a lot you know I mean going back I just you know I was just sort of a naive like you know I didn't overthink it. I just jumped. I was like, hey, if Ben and Jerry's can do it, I can do it. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't think it was any, you know, they didn't seem that smart to me. And like, you know yeah. what I mean? I'm like, if they can do it, I can do it too. So we're going to make this new kind of ice cream in America and it's going to be the next Ben and Jerry's. I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think you have to have that kind of belief. And I, I think that, you know, a lot of people do tend to put brands like that up on a pedestal and not believe that. They can. And, you know, at a time like this, especially, I think it's really important for people to know that you can do it. You really can. You'd have to do your work and you got to have that belief, but it is possible. Everybody has to start somewhere. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you know, I didn't know at the time that like ice cream is a, is an extraordinarily competitive, um, Mm Place the whole ice cream, and especially when you get into grocery and uh, cutthroat and brutal, that it's easier to make almost any other product than ice cream. You know, you've got to move fluid, dairy, you know, milk around, and you know, find farms to work with. And then, of course, we don't want to work with just any farm. Like you know, these were like really big ideals we had, and like it was nearly impossible to do. But also, the market for ice cream had changed. The way that ice cream is being distributed had changed. The way that ice cream is being sold has changed. And so it's actually just even harder now to break into that system. Mm-hmm. So you really have to be super different and create a... Um, you know, It's not the same as when Ben & Jerry's started. I mean, it wasn't easy then either. But you know, the way that things were distributed were different back then. And so it was just like all of these things kind of... I had no idea. You know, yeah, it was just like, right. tough, you know, right. and I'd really just say, so I, my motto is start small and build. I just think that you can break any system. You can do anything. You don't have to be the sort of, I don't know, disruptor, I don't know, overnight disruptor. 
right? You can start small in 1996 for, for mm. true disruption in 2016, right? That's a mm. long time away. Yeah. But you can really say that we really did completely disrupt that ice cream system now. Now, I, I know you had a, a, a start stop before Jenny's became Jenny's, but so is 96 uh, the start of Jenny's or the start of the first That's the venture? start of Scream. That was my first, okay. I think of it as a prototype. Yep. Okay. And so I have memories. I don't know that we've ever talked about this before. I'm sure others have said the same thing to you, but I can remember going to the North Market. I don't know what year you ended up in the North Market. I think it was with Jenny's yeah. at that point. I, okay. So uh, 1996 to 2000, I was in the market. And okay. then 2002 on again. Okay. So I can't remember if it was Jenny's or not, but I remember you sitting in the market by yourself in your stand. There was nobody else there with you. And you would walk up and say, you know, what kind of ice cream you wanted and you would hand it to them. And, and I remember thinking like, that's Jenny of Jenny's. Right, like she's the Jenny behind the ice cream, but I also remember thinking of you as like a very small business that you were literally kind of like doing it all, including showing up every day and serving ice cream, and it ha- it it kind of like made an impact on me that um, you were doing it all. You know that that like I I don't know that I had really seen kind of entrepreneurship like that before where the person's name was on the door and they were scooping the ice cream. I think I had maybe assumed that there was like people around you to do stuff right out of the gate. And, and, you know, I just remember, you know, you in those early days doing it. Yeah. I was boots on the ground in the market between Scream and Jenny's. I was in the market for a total of at least eight or 10 years every day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's not including those times, those three years, two years that I took off, um, restructured the business plan and opened again. So, I mean, I showed up every single day, made ice cream, served it over the counter and, um, and listened to feedback, which was great. It's like the foundation of everything we know and do today at Jenny's, my Jedi skills, right? I mean, you can, we can go out and ask a hundred people for their opinions or you could spend years, you know, and then we kind of maybe form a plan and know what to do, but like, or you could spend years literally giving someone a sample. And listening to what they say, you know, people wonder like, you know, it wasn't that we always wanted to make this like $10 a pint ice cream or whatever. That's the standard of our customers, right? Because everything I do after Scream, uh, because Scream, I was still thinking too much like an artist and whatever. But after Scream, every single thing I did was in partnership with our customer. It wasn't Jenny, the ice cream maker, you know, presenting whatever I wanted you to try today. It was, I'm going to put something out there but we're also going to have the stuff that you loved yesterday here. So it was like a combination of both. If you love it, I'm going to keep it. And then I'm going to try something else too, see if, see what you think. But anyway, listening and learning and forming that like deep knowledge, that deep intuition. Intuition is informed, right? That's like the Jedi is no longer doing drills. The Jedi is trained, right? But so like, that's what intuition is. It's not just like this random idea. Right. Yeah, we we often say that you get you develop really great gut instincts by doing a lot of sit-ups. You know, that you have to actually really do the reps to be able to, you know, have those kind of instinctual intuitive. Yeah, live it. Um, yeah. 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 So but we wanna um, we wanna kind of skip that part now. I mean, I think that, you know, when I look yeah. out, I I I know that like many businesses need to be that sort of business school approach, pitch, get big money early and go, mm-hmm. okay, but many businesses do. 
But I think a pendulum is a little too far on that side right now because yeah. you can also just start a business. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You can also study whatever intrigues you, whatever you're meant to do, whether it's medicine or skateboards, you know, and start a business based on the needs of that community that you're the unique person to identify. Right? Yeah, I think that's really a great point. You know, I think there's a lot of talk. I've seen the the tweets about the companies that came out of 2006 to eight, the Airbnbs and Ubers and all the new economy companies that emerged in the last downturn. And there's this kind of race for the next unicorns. There's a lot of like unicorn talk, and and I think it's actually. Um, you know, fine, those companies are going to happen, but they're like the the one percent of the one percent of the one percent of the one percent, right? Like what 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 we really need to be focusing on is the small businesses, the entrepreneurs, and supporting them in because that makes up most of of what makes our economy is is that person. And more importantly, I think there's so much of a you know, kind of rat race, unhealthy aspect to this unicorn thing where you're seeing a lot of really good people, entrepreneurs burn out, you know, learn the hard way, you know, not make it through. I mean, it's it's traumatizing, I think, to be on that kind of a scale, scale, scale mode. Well, it doesn't make sense to me at all. I mean, I, I, some people, you know, obviously like we're all so different. So some people are really suited for that and that's fine, obviously. But I think of entrepreneurship as freedom. And most of people, it's an act of rebellion, right? You're not happy with something, so you go over here and start something, right? You, you're not happy with working for someone else, so you've got to be on your own. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an act of rebellion. It's like, I'm going to go over here and create my own world, and my rules are the rules, right? And, um, and as soon as you bring money in, as soon as you bring somebody else's money, you now work for them. It's no different than working at Nationwide, right? Which is great and fine, but the entrepreneur personalities that I know in the world, and that's many people, I like that's the opposite of what we actually want to do, right? We want to go and explore and do things and we want to be MacGyver, get ourselves into trouble and like work ourselves out of it and build resilience and all of those things and keep going forward and innovation and all that stuff. But once you're beholden to like that money, all of that comes to a halt. You are not, so yeah, that's where you get a lot of mental health issues. That's where you get a lot of, I mean, most people that I know who are that sort of start small and build entrepreneurs would rather live off of minimum wage like I did for 10 years, but be free of that system. But to be free to, to, um, to create with their customers and to build this world slowly and live off of minimum wage than to make lots of money and you know, have to be innovate, 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 profit, profit, profit for someone yeah. else. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. Uh, I think it, it flies against the v- very spirit of the individual that got there in the first place. Um, well, and there's... we're missing out on these people, like by not helping those people who've been through the struggle, who've been through this like childhood uh, where they're building resilience, or teenage years where we're building resilience, and we're not helping lift those people up and inspire those people to say you can do it in America and to help them start businesses versus. You know, in, in this start small and build kind of way, I mean, I just feel like we're we're missing some of that talent by not finding ways to inspire those people to just start. You don't have to have a Stanford education or a Fisher um, education to be an entrepreneur. Like, you know, in fact, that might actually not be great. <laughs> you know what I mean? For some, yeah, of I agree. You know, yeah, I I think you're you're absolutely right. And also, I think and, it can help with the pandemic like coming out of this big crisis over the next few years when mm-hmm. we get people to start businesses, just local businesses that can slowly grow. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. You know, I think this is maybe one of the silver linings. I hope so, at least. I think to some degree, we'll see a shift in how people are thinking about going to school, education, what's important, the people that are hustling and learning and being creative, you know, elevating creativity and, and, and valuing intelligence in a different way. You know, now is a great opportunity for those people to really emerge. And um, I love hearing you say that, you know, we need to support them. I, I couldn't agree more with you. And I'm curious, you know, as we kind of talk a little bit about the time that we're in now, you, you've had struggles um, in the business. You talked about kind of the, the prototype, but then also I know you guys had the Listeria struggle and now you're in this. And, and I'm not, you know, so um, curious about kind of hearing like, all the specifics of those times, but I'm I am curious, you know, what that's been like for you to to really, you know, have to look at like the worst case scenarios and be in that crisis and 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 to come out through it. You know, what was it like to kind of do that, and and, and how is it like that now? You know, your values are forged in crisis. You know, you, you can believe that they are a certain way. You can believe that you're a certain kind of person, that we have a certain kind of team, that we are united by our values and that we're community-spirited leaders and all that stuff. But until you get really tested, until you mm-hmm. have to say, look, if we stick by our values, we are probably dead in the water, right? Mm-hmm. Or we could go this way and maybe be okay. And you still stick by them. All right, now you have a reason to feel that confidence when you get through it. That okay, that's great. We did that, and now we're um, you know. So, I would also say that one of the reasons you know I don't love like um, being stuck. Um, you know, you, you just you don't rest on your laurels. You don't rest on your achievements and all that stuff. You never get comfortable because you know the ground can fall out again. And mm-hmm. so, being like knowing that that's coming. And you're training yourself to be good at that, right? Mm-hmm. How can we um, have such an incredible? How can we build such an incredible team, a real fellowship, one like truly like Lord of the Rings, right? Where we have mm. every person on our leadership team and throughout the company bringing in their complete awesomeness, so that when we end up in times like this, we are at least like the best team that we possibly believe we can put together to solve it to get through it. There's um. You know, it's awful. It's really awful. But it's also like there's this incredible rush of creativity, of community, of hard work, of that sort of literal like get the ring to Mordor, like life or death fellowship uh, mission that there's some, I don't know, sort of silver lining, I think, sometimes in crisis. You don't wish it on your worst enemy, but it can be like the best for you. Right. And in the spirit of kind of like everything happening for our benefit, yet sometimes it's like, I got it, you know, God, you know, whatever you believe, like, you know, I'll learn from this too, but like, it's been enough, you know, like. (laughs) If you read also history and I do a lot, I'm just, I'm, I like to like, I mean, I'm very emotional and that doesn't mean that I'm like, I don't know, that I'm like a, like emotional about every little thing. You know what I mean? I'm just an emotional thinker. So I know how I feel about stuff. And I, I'm very connected in my emotions. And so when I read history, I can almost like, I read it so deeply. Like I want to know what it smelled like, what the fabric felt like and all of that stuff so that I can get my emotions there as much as possible. And so you get your mind there and so you can actually get your emotions there. And when you do that, you really feel like you've time traveled. Like you're really starting to think like a person from that era or whatever. And so when I read, you know, history of like 
the 20th century, you know, people that I know who lived through some of that stuff. And I think, well, shit, you know, we've had it so easy since the 70s, really, you know, since I was born on this earth compared to what somebody would have lived through in the 20th century and every other time for history before that. And so you start to think like, yeah, you know, you build resiliency and you get used to that and that's good, but it's nothing like what our great-grandparents went through from the time they were born all the way through their Mm -hmm. lives, you know? And then before that, you know, our relatives, the pioneers, the, you know, everybody. So having that perspective is part of, um, I think, resilience as well. Yeah, but then, you know, it, it comes in in all kinds of new unimaginable ways, right? You know, in our careers, we've seen planes fly into buildings, which we yes. never thought possible. You know, we've seen, um, you know, huge economic crisis. You've seen, you know, what you've experienced. And now this, you know, you, you kind of think, all right, well, I've learned, right? I, I kind of know I'm better, I'm smarter. And then, but like, it comes in a way that you know, is beyond, you know, your comprehension is what we're dealing with now. You know, tell me, do do you still feel like we're prepared? We know how to manage through crisis. There's still enough learning there, but, you know, it's new too. Yeah. And I mean, I I think I've learned in this crisis how important it is for our government to be aligned and to be a beacon of hope and, and steadiness. Um, because it's really, really difficult to know what the right answer is. And everybody has a different idea of what that is. And I, we've had really good leaders across the country on both sides of the aisle. Um, um, I know I look to Governor Dwine. I mean, he's been doing, I thought he did a really great job. But then, you know, it's still very difficult to get those sort of answers. And like, that's really hard when, we, when we're not united at yeah. all because i feel like during this crisis one of the hardest things is that you can't make a right decision there's no way to say well we did it this way because you know you have to you end up just saying well we read all of we read everyone's opinions we read all of these ideas and we decided this and then it, you're always it's just you know it's really hard to make something that feels right at mm-hmm. the time um so i i like to think of that too internal you know in the company is it like that, you know, it's, it's like that in a company as well, like leadership, when you can be sort of decisive, when you can be um, open and transparent about how you came to the conclusions and whatever. I think that builds safety in how, in people sort of in that community, it builds mm-hmm. that feeling of safety or, or whatever, which is so important. Mm. Yeah. I'm actually yeah. more concerned right now too. I mean, I'm con- we're all concerned about so much, but I'm really concerned with how divided everybody is. And I, mm-hmm. um, I think that that's going to be a, such a difficult thing for us to, to get through as a as a community. That you know, it's definitely playing into the pandemic and how how we're all responding to that. But it's mm-hmm. it's that you know we we've got to find a way to get back together. And I think that's just going to be the the work that that we're going to do for a long time. Now. Yeah, I think it's really deeply ingrained. You know that people's. Um, I know for me, even you know, my politics are reflective of kind of who I feel like I am. And then I make decisions based on how I live and respond to things like this based on who I am. And so is everybody else. And if we're very different people, it is often hard to really come together and find that middle ground and that openness to, you know, want to, um, you know, learn and, and, and find, you know, some kind of middle ground. It's, it's, it's generationally ingrained in us and it's very difficult. I don't have the answers. You know, I, I don't know what you do with that. I'm just trying to do my best to stay, you know, open and, and not, you know, be any more divisive than, you know, I, than, you know, 
but but it's a tough thing. It's a very difficult. Yeah, and I'm for hoping us. that that ice cream can play a role in that. Actually, I mean, I've been you know it's obviously great. very very open with my political beliefs, but only because I, I was raised to think that that's like an American virtue. That this is like something you do. You campaign for your candidate. You get out and work of, to build the community that you want to build, and everybody else is doing that too. And you respect other people's opinions as well. But um, but I hope that. Um, I do hope that, and I, I do, and I don't demonize, and I know many, many people in rural America, of course, even farmers and growers that we work with, and then my own family in rural Illinois. Um, and I just, I just don't see what the media, I, I have this great vantage point because I've been out on the road for ever and ever for years, a decade. I mean, I'm on the road constantly and I'm talking to lots of people all over the country. I just see the country as a different place than what the media is putting out. Mm-hmm. And so I realize that if it, if it takes me pulling back, um, like being open about that so that I can just show that I'm actually really open about, you know, to, to other people and other ideas and um, showing that out loud for, for a time too, then, then maybe I need to do that. Maybe ice cream can be that sort of thing that brings people together. I mean, that's our mission anyway, is to bring yeah. people together you know, for ice cream. So. Well, and, and you've said a couple of things I want to kind of um, start to, you know, kind of wrap up with, but I'm, but I am really curious, you know, you've talked a lot about creativity. You talked about, early on kind of dreaming this magical world which you still dream of and and even your your title is chief creative officer you know you're you're focused on you know at least in part maybe large part the 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 creativity of the business and and you know we talked a little bit about kind of you know the difference between being in business and being an entrepreneur and you know i think that kind of maybe also a lens to your creativity. I, I I'm curious to hear a little bit about kind of the you know your role in the company, the creativity, and then along those lines, I, I have a request from um, my kids. They really want to know about Tyler, the creator. Oh yes, <laughs> yes. This is well, a big deal in my house. Them. So yeah, there's some there's there's a. The, the, the related, the, these questions. So yeah. I think that entrepreneurship is building your own world. I've thought that since the very beginning, even when I was a kid, wow, you can just go create your own thing. And that it's like you're building community. The world means something. There are certain rules here. There are this, there, there's a way of life here that when you walk into the Jenny's community, it means this. What does it mean? And that's my job. You know, it means... Um, means flavor, basically. I mean, if you look up the word flavor in the dictionary, it means, it says the essential character of something. So we're talking, you know, there's lots of flavor here. We like diversity. We like new um, opinions and ideas. We like everybody to be themselves and all of that. Love community um, and just love, just starting from a place of love is what we kind of represent. So when you come in, how are we showing that and, and positive, being sort of positive and hopeful about the future? Tyler kind of feels the same way. Tyler's got his whole world, right? So he's um, he's got he's been sort of building that world too. And when you walk into Tyler's world, that's what it is. And if I could just share about that, like one of the things that I love about Tyler is that he has a couple of really of people who are really close to him in his life, and they're very supportive of him. Um, and I think that if we support our kiddos in similar ways, our young people in similar ways, the only outcome is highly is highly creative people. I think one of the things that easily could have happened to Tyler in the beginning is somebody could have said, yeah, no, you know, like go do this and, and whatever. But he ended up kind of, you know, pushing it on his own for a while and then getting surrounded by these incredible people who, who support him. And I just want, 
I want all of our young people to have that kind of a support system. And so that they can become in their own way, their own like sort of Tyler. But he is a, he's a remarkable guy. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it was a exciting thing to see you guys connect and collaborate because, you know, he really is, you know, I mean, you're, it was kind of, you know, a, a, as he was really kind of at the top, you know, of, of his career and not that he's done, but you know, that, that was like a, a real big time for him and for even Columbus to have, you know, that kind of spotlight celebrity and, and knowing that he is so creative and so kind of in creating his own world. And I see the, 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 similarities and it's a really awesome well when Tyler first came so he he lives near one of our stores and he rides his bike over there he and his buddies a lot he doesn't do drugs and stuff like that so he, he ice cream is his kind of thing but he's over there a lot and so when I first got on the phone with him he started reciting from memory all of these details of the store and like I mm. wrote almost all of those so all the flavor tags and the posters and all of the stuff and he had read every single thing. So mm-hmm. when he came in, he was relating to, wow, this is not like a normal business. This isn't a business mm-hmm. that I normally... Like all the details, like he was linking into those. And he was so curious, which is one of his big traits, I think, that literally like two days later, I got on a plane and flew out there with some ice cream samples for him because I felt like he he's a real deal. Like he really gets he it. He got it. He, he got gets it. it. Yeah. yeah. And like, um, and it's and and we don't do it so that you walk in and have to read every single detail and get it. But you know, I think that it does come. These details do come together in the way that you feel about different, you know, about a business that you like and support. But he really sees every detail, and I feel like there's just something about he is doing it in his life, and so he saw that I was doing that in my in this world too. And so when we met in person, it was almost like. Um, star-crossed lovers in a way. I mean, it was like mm-hmm. everybody in the room noticed a few other people in the room. It was like all of a sudden we started speaking shorthand together. Yeah. yeah. It was because we know what that is, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I do know. But and I think and- that we can, I think that the takeaway is I think we can train kids to think this way. I don't think it's mystical. I don't think it's something you're born with. I think we can encourage kids to think this way. It's that sort of roll doll, Willy Wonka, you know, yeah. um, it's a roll doll style of, of, creating in the world. Yeah, I I actually think this is just my belief. I actually think we are born that way, but it gets sucked out of us pretty fast. I agree. And we we have to foster it is what you're saying. You you have to really foster it. And so just just tell me just to kind of make sure we complete the the childhood part of the story. Um, You did say that your dad came back into your life. And I'm just curious, maybe kind of now with the success you've had, the growth you've had, the way things have turned out, having your own family, kind of how that, you know, kind of parental picture, you know, rounded out. You know, family is complex. Everybody's family is very complex and mine is that way as well. Um, But but I have two... Uh, you know, obviously amazing kids that that are just wonderful and I'm giving them a different life than what I had and and also trying to bring elements of my um, my life my life into their life. I don't want their lives to be easy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Even though we can make it easy. I want them to struggle because I need them to be independent people and thinkers. And both of them are in their schools um, to do kind of independent thinkers and doers and um, and aren't just kind of the kids that go with the system or whatever. I don't know if I actually taught him how to do that, or maybe that's part of that, um, you know, you just get it because you're related to me kind of thing. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, it's, um, 
it's it's it's, it's interesting. My my sister is here too. She has children same age as my children, and then uh, and then my brother, who is awesome. And like I said, he just got in, uh, accepted to the police academy, which is awesome. He's mm. going to make a really incredible police officer. My sister is an interesting story as well. She um, and I are very different, but she she was um, she literally told all of her teachers to fuck off um, <laughs> the last day of school, and they were like, well, "We're not graduating." Yes. We're not yes. graduating. Yet. Oh no! It was like, bye. <laughs> and she did so close. Literally what she we couldn't have got the diploma and then do it. You got to get the diploma first, then you do it. <laughs> it was literally the last day of school, and she got yeah. up and walked out of school at Upper mm. Arlington. And they were like, "Fine," you know. They were just really angry. They wouldn't give her a degree or her diploma, so she got her GED. But now she and and by the way, she started math in um where whatever uh, Wright State University O five O. And now she's a coder for national defense. She's like, uh, inc- I mean, she's, I, I don't even know what the heck she does. She puts on a f- mm. headphones and things. She has multiple screens and she goes to work every day at her house. But she is incredible. She has multiple math degrees and uh, anyway, whatever. Mm. So it's mm. kind of crazy. There's, there's some brilliance kids, in the uh, genes. We're, we're resilient kids. We, um, yeah, well, you're, you're brilliant in different ways and yeah, totally resilient. And I, I want to just, you know, thank you for sharing all of that, because like I said, I think, you know, you're not alone. Um, these stories aren't often told. People aren't often opening up and sharing the kind of um, struggle um, that, you know, is pretty common and, and unfortunately, both in life and in work. And I really appreciate you sharing all of it and taking time during this crazy time to, to, to be with me and share your story. Any final Kind of thoughts, um, any anything you want to make sure people know to follow you or find you or any sh- I mean, thoughts I just you want to share? I just want people to know that I am so committed to the city. I think it's, I like you, I think these, these stories are very, very important. I think that we can do so much to inspire the kids of Columbus, the young people of Columbus and, and everybody in Columbus to, um, to, to build the community that they want to live in, to get active in it, to start a business, to believe in yourself. And my goal for the rest of my life will be that here in the city. Like, how can I help um, somebody, uh, you know, follow this path? Um, how can I challenge maybe a, a entrepreneurship, education, so that we can appeal more to people, you know, kids who've been through the struggle or whatever it is. So I think we are just so lucky to live in the city and I'm ready to go. Thank you. Well, you're you're doing it, and it's uh, much appreciated. And I know you'll continue to make a difference here in, in the city, and with so many people, and with your organization, and all that you're doing. So, thanks, Jenny. Well, I appreciate thank your time. You and likewise, thanks for the, the conversation. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at The Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.